All right, good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? It's a great day to uh, be outside, and summer is officially here, and I mean, it's not officially here, but it feels like it's here, right? It's good. It's good to be able to just, in this lockdown, to look at something that is positive, and, and sometimes weather is all that we have to look towards. And so it's good. Um, today, as we continue on in our sermon series, The Life of David, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 19 today, and here we see King David restored. King David was kicked out of his kingdom by his son Absalom, and we're going to, today we're going to take a look at a couple things. First, we're going to look at David's heart, and then we're going to look at three characters in how we position ourselves before the king, and how that speaks of how the church positions themselves. Sometimes when we are doing this Christian thing, the discipleship, whatever we want to call it, sometimes we can get discouraged or we can get sidetracked off of what God has called us. Um, but God gives us an opportunity to walk back, and today we're going to see that. And we're also going to see how people relate to, it, to, to the king, how Christians, how the church, how we, we come back when, when we see that, okay, the king is restored in my life. But what does that actually mean? What is the posture that I'm going to take um, when I see the king? So we're going to take a look at that. But before we go into that, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for just who you are and what you're doing in our lives. Father God, as we look into your word today, may you send your spirit into every single home that we may be able to be in your presence and let you challenge our spirit and challenge our heart in how we are to live. But Lord, we ask for an encouragement as well. We ask that you encourage us so that we could continue to be your church and to glorify your name. So Lord, we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to um, 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're going to go through the whole chapter here. But just a quick recap uh, before we get into, the, in, into chapter 19 here. Um, David sinned. David was this king that was brought up through the ranks um, under Saul. Saul tried to kill him. David overcame that. He started his kingdom and his ruling in Hebron in, in the southern kingdom. And then finally God gave him the entire kingdom when Saul was eventually murdered. David as king wins many battles. He was very victorious. God promised him that this is going to be your kingdom. I'm going to establish you. And David was so faithful with God up until the whole David and Bathsheba incident happened. Where David steps out of line of what God has for him. And what he ends up doing is he takes advantage of Bathsheba and then kills Uriah. And this begins kind of David's downfall in a sense. From this point, we actually see even what the prophet Nathan has said to him, that the sword will never leave your house, meaning that there will, all, there will be war within his own family. 
And as we have studied over the last couple of weeks, we, we slowly see the progression of all of these things that's happened. And now we're sitting at a place where it's about 20 years after the whole David and Bathsheba thing happened. So we're sitting probably around 22, 23 years after David fell. And as Alex preached last week, David's troops were at war with Absalom. Absalom, if you don't remember, Absalom is actually the second-born son of David. And he basically came and, and decided to, to, to have this coup against his own father, right? We look at Absalom, and he's like, well, how could you do that? How, 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 how dare you do something like that? Well, this is the reason why Absalom was able to actually succeed in doing this coup. Absalom, along with Ahithophel, Ahithophel is one of David's senior counselors, but remember, Ahithophel is also the grandfather of Bathsheba, right? So it's not, there, there's, there's so many ties and so many links to all the story and how all of this unfolds, and it's all because David decided to sidestep he was discouraged in some ways of his walk with God, even though he repented, and we see his repentance in, in, in the book of Psalms. He repented, he, he turned his life around, but in so many ways, David was discouraged by what happened, by the sin that, 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 that he, 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 he committed. David was reaping the consequence of his sin and everything that Nathan spoke to him that said, this is God's judgment that's going to come upon you has happened. And it's happened over the period of these next 20 years. So I'm going to quickly recap all of the things that's happened. David right now, he's, in, he, he's fled to Mahanaim, which is 10 miles east of the Jordan. He sought refuge there. Um... So what happened after David and Bathsheba happened was that his sons, as they were growing up, Amnon, who is actually his firstborn son, the actual heir to the throne, decides that he's overcome with his lust towards his sister Tamar, and he rapes her, defiles her. But King David doesn't do anything about it. Tamar is actually Absalom's sister, right? And Absalom is furious of this because he's like, Dad, why aren't you doing something about this? Why are you just letting this go to the wayside? Why are you not speaking up? Why are you not doing something to the son that has committed something against your daughter? So Absalom decides, since you're not going to do anything, I'm going to do something about it. And Absalom eventually takes the life of Amnon. And then after he does that, he flees. He runs away to his grandfather, stays at his grandfather's place, decides that, my dad is probably going to kill me after this. Um, I'm probably going to lose everything. So he flees to his grandfather's place. For three years, he's there. David doesn't do anything. David is sad. He speaks about how sad he is, but he doesn't do anything about it. There's an inaction on the part of David. And then finally, what happens is Joab calls David out on it. And he says, hey, you need to bring your son back. This is actually your heir to your throne. You need to bring him back. And so David hears the story. 
And he's just like, okay, yeah, no, I'm going to bring him back. He brings him back. But what happens as Absalom is brought back is that David still ghosts him for the next three years. David doesn't talk to him. He ignores him completely until Absalom, who's sitting here, he's thinking that, oh, my father is taking me back. But for two years, nothing happens. So what he does is he goes and sets fire to Joab's fields just to get the attention of Joab. He's like, hey, what's going on here? What's happening? I need to know what's happening. He feels as a son completely broken in a place where my father doesn't care. My father isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. My father doesn't love me. He probably has a mistrust with David. He's at a point where he doesn't even know his position or know his identity. So Absalom, instead of revering his father, honoring his father, he decides to take things into his own hands and he decides that I'm going to be king. So he sets up this coup against David and he is successful. Why is he successful? It's because what Absalom did was absolutely one of the most brilliant things. He sets up himself at the gate of the capital city and as people come in to have requests for the king, Absalom slowly wins the heart of the people. He starts fulfilling these requests that David actually should be doing, but David is so preoccupied with everything else. And the Bible doesn't specifically say what David is preoccupied by, but we know that David is preparing to build the temple for God. So maybe David is so preoccupied with building the temple, or maybe he's just sitting and wallowing in the, in the, in, in the sin that he's committed, or what, what, whatever it is, David is not taking care of his household. He is not looking after his household or his people because he gave opportunity for Absalom to start fulfilling some of these needs that the people had. And Absalom started to win the hearts of the people. That's why the coup was successful. That's why Absalom was able to turn over the kingdom and that's why people followed him. It's because people felt like Absalom cared. This is why his, he was successful. Why was Absalom successful? Is because David wasn't taking care of his own household. David had every opportunity to make things right. But he chose inactivity when it came to matters of his own household. He was preoccupied with something else. He was distracted. He was discouraged, maybe. Whatever the reason it is, David was not caring and loving and, 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 and giving what his kids need. In fact, David was neglecting his kids. You see, sometimes as parents, we, we get to that place where we get so busy or we're so preoccupied with providing for them in some way, or we think that by working so hard and, 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 and working those, all those extra hours is to provide for them for their basic needs so that they can have a better life, but in reality, what the kids actually need is just time with you. We have so many fathers out there that are so absent in their kids' 
kids' lives because of the fact that they're not spending enough time with their kids. This is true for even people in ministry, pastors, missionaries, that are, for the sake of the ministry, allowing others to raise their kids. There used to be this thing called missionary school. I think they're starting to rule a lot of these things out, where missionaries would go overseas to serve. And instead of bringing their kids along, they send their kids to these missionary schools, which is most of the time in another country, not even in the same country that the parents are serving in, and expecting that their kids are going to turn out right. But how are they supposed to turn out right if you're not going to raise them? If you're not going to be the parent, if you're not going to, to take that time to raise your kids, how do you expect your kids to raise to be raised up right. David was in this place where he was ignoring things. And when we come into chapter 19, this is right after Absalom is killed. They're at war. Absalom is now killed, and the troops are coming home. Word gets back to David. David hears the news. And he is completely broken. He is mourning so badly that in verse 2, it says this. It says, so the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For all the people heard that day that the king is grieving for his son. Imagine being one of the soldiers that just went to war for David to fight back for their kingdom. You, in some ways, have succeeded, even though maybe the outcome wasn't the same way that King David wanted it, but you succeeded. And you're in a place of victory, and you're walking back, and you hear that the king is grieving. He's not just grieving. He is full on lamenting. He is crying out for the death of his son. How do you feel as part of that army, part of that troop, did we do something wrong, would be your first reaction. Did we not just do the work that the king asked us to do? Did we not just come to a place of, of, of winning a battle to restore our king, but yet our king is crying like a baby? Yes, I get that David is mourning his son. He didn't want this to happen. He didn't want the outcome to be the death of Absalom. But what David neglected, in the same way that he neglected his kids, is he neglected to lead his people. He forgot that he got so consumed in his own feelings and in his his own emotions that he forgot that I am king. I am a king that people are looking towards for answers. I am a leader that is leading a nation and that I need to be strong for all of those people that are following me. As parents, we need to be there. We need to be present because our kids are watching us as they are following us. They watch every step that we take, every emotion that we have affects your children. If you're having a bad day, guess what? Your children are going to feel that you're having a bad day. They're going to be sensitive to the fact that your emotions are not in the right place. And when that happens, it causes a a shakening within the troops for, for in David's sake, but in our family's sake, it actually shakes up our kids. 
sometimes as leaders, and when, when we look at this, sometimes we look like, oh, well, well, King David is a leader of a nation. But all of us are leaders in some way. Whether you're a teacher, you're a leader of your classroom. Whether you're a, a boss, you're a leader of, or a supervisor, you're a leader of a team. Whether you're, you're I don't know what position that you, you do, you're leading something. If you're parents, you're leading your family. You always have to think about the people that you're leading and the people that you affect in the, way, in the place of, your, uh, of, of how you behave. We can't just lash out prematurely and immaturely and just do what our feelings dictate for us to do because there are people that are watching us. And so as David is crying, the, the troops are shaken, Joab comes to David and he's just like, smarten up. People are watching you and people are expecting have a huge expectation from you. I'm not saying that David needs to, to, to live up to everybody's expectation. But David needs to, needed to hold a composure to give security to his nation, to his troops, to his army, despite how he feels. As a father, I'm always very aware of how my kids react. I'm always very aware of how, what I'm doing, because I, I, I'm very aware of my kids' emotions. And sometimes, like, yes, I, I get it. As a parent, there are days where it just sucks. Like, there are days where you're so tired, and it's just this constant chaos in your household, and it, it starts wearing you down, and sometimes you lash out. I get that. But at the same time, have you ever lashed out and looked on your kid's face because they don't know what's happening? Where they look and they're just like, oh, okay, dad's angry with me. Well, that's probably not true. I'm probably not angry with them. A little annoyed by them, but not angry. But everything that we do affects the relationships that are around us. Everything that we do affects the people that we love most, the people that we are in relationships with, and the people that we're leading. So Joab calls David out on this. He's like, hey, you need to change your composure right now. You need to change what you're doing and what I love is that David actually listens to this. He may not agree with what Joab just did because he didn't want Joab to kill Absalom. Joab took things in his own hands, and we see that Joab has done this many, many times. Right? Joab has, has took things into his own hands and, and acted on his own feelings more so than what David has asked him to do. And so we actually see that David actually replaces Joab for for not just for this thing, but for, for many, many things. But Joab comes to David, and he's just like, hey, you need to, the troops are coming back, and this doesn't look good. You need to smarten up. Who do we have in our lives that are Joabs, that are willing to come and tell us, hey, 
You need to snap out of it. You need to smarten up right now. And are we humble enough to receive that? Whether we agree with them or not, are we humble enough to receive that, to see what the needs of the people that are following us? Are we humble enough to see that, okay, I do need to smarten up because they need it? King David was. And so King David, in his grieving, he got his composure and went to the gates and met the troops. Oftentimes in our walk with God, we can get discouraged in a place where we're not either walking in the calling or doing the assignment that God has, do, has called us to do. We may be discouraged for many, many different reasons. We may be discouraged because we feel like God is calling us to do something and as, as we're walking through it, as we feel like we're getting to the end of it, it doesn't happen. And that discouragement could be completely devastating. That, that, that discouragement could be what derails you and says, maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe God isn't there for me. Maybe God doesn't love me enough to allow me to walk out what he's planned for me. But how much do you actually trust God in everything, in every decision, in everything that happens, in every outcome of you walking out your journey and your calling out with God? How many of you actually trust that God has every single thing, even the discouragement in his plans? David did. His posture as he was called out on his selfish emotions of feeling this grievance of his son and being called out by the commander of his army that disobeyed his command. As a king, if my, the commander of my army came to me and was like, hey, you need to smarten up. You can't be grieving for your son. And this is the man that killed my son. What do you think I would do as a king? I would probably just kill him. I would be, you were insubordinate and you didn't listen to my commands. What the heck are you doing? But David didn't do that. David heard what, I, what Joab was saying to him and he decided in that moment to be like, okay, I need to change what I'm doing right now because I trust that there is something that is much greater and that is much bigger than what I know in this moment. David's posture was one that he trusted the ultimate king. So as David wins this battle, we see that David gets restored as king. He returns to Jerusalem. But as he returns to Jerusalem, David acts with wisdom. He doesn't just decide, okay, Absalom's dead. I'm going to go back. I'm going to cross over back to the Jordan River, and I'm going to take my place on the throne again. David knows it's not that simple because he knows that Absalom has already won the hearts of the people, right? And that some of these people don't actually want David back as king. Some of these people don't trust David at this time. And so what David does is David calls on two people 
the high priest of the southern tribe. He calls them to help speak on behalf of him. These are high priests that, that he trusts, and he knew, he knew that he needed to start off in Judah because that's where Absalom started everything. He started the coup all in Hebron. He started the coup in the southern kingdom. So, I mean, very, very, very quickly here to kind of position us. Judah is southern kingdom. They're one tribe, right? The biggest tribe in the land. That's where David comes from. That's where also the lineage of Jesus comes from because it comes through David. So they are from the tribe of Judah. And then the 10 tribes are, the rest of the 10 tribes are in the north. So that makes up of Israel. That's why when, when the kingdom split between Israel and Judah, it was the northern kingdom of Israel, which is 10 tribes, and then Judah. So David says, I'm going to call on two of the high priests of Judah, and I'm going to get them to speak on behalf of me. And the two high priests, their name is Zadok and Abiathar. And we, you, you'll, you'll find that in verse 11. And and when the elders of Judah asked, why should we bring David back? Said, David says that you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? So David goes and says, like, you're my people. Remember, David is from Judah. He's like, you're my people. I need to win my people back. So in, in, in so many ways, David then chooses to take this man by the name of Amasa, who, is, who was Absalom's commander of his army, and he takes him and replaces Joab with him, further securing the trust of the people. And so David was not going to cross over, to the, cross over the Jordan until... He was brought back over by his people. That was the only way that David was going to do it. He said, unless I am brought back over the Jordan River, back to my land, back to my kingdom, I'm not going to cross over. And so as he started to win the hearts back of people, we see that there are three characters that come and meet David at the river. And what they do is they're asking David for forgiveness. So we see that David's character here is like, yes, he sidestepped. Yeah, he misstepped, but he's coming back to a place where he's just like, okay, God, restore me. Restore me back to who I was. Bring me back to my kingdom. Bring me back to all that you have promised me. And so David's posture is that that. Even though I may have done something wrong, God could always make something right. He knows that. That no matter how far I sidestep, by God's grace, he will always make things right again. And so David's position as king is always a place of humility. David's position as king is always one where he postures himself before God in a way where he listens to what God has to say. And so even as David is preparing himself to cross over, he has three encounters with three different people. And we see that David actually acts with mercy. Why? Because David has received mercy. 
But why does David act with mercy? Is because God always moves with mercy. God moves first with love and he extends his mercy to you. So David moves in that same way. So the first character we see here is, a, is by a guy named Shammai. Shammai, actually, we see his, his story a couple chapters back. When David was running away from his kingdom, chapter 16, Shammai, who is from the lineage of Saul, he's a Benjamite from the tribe of Benjamin. He actually goes and goes out and meets David's kind of caravan as they're running away, as they're fleeing Israel, and he curses King David, and he's throwing stones at King David to a place where, where David, men's like, who is this dead dog that dares to do something like this? Let me cut his head off. And David has mercy. He's like, no, just leave him. Let us just, let's just go. So now that King David, Absalom is defeated, this guy was like, oh, yay, good. Absalom's going to be king. King David's no longer going to be king. I don't need to respect this man. I'm going to curse him. I'm going to throw stones at him. Now he knows, he hears Absalom is dead and King David is coming back. He's like, oh, I need to do something. So he runs to the Jordan River, meets King David at the river, and he asks and pleads for forgiveness. And as he meets King David, as he meets King David there, he says, I have sinned. Again, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? People didn't forget who he was, they didn't forget that he was the one that was cursing King David. That, that he was the one that was throwing rocks at King David. That he was one of those dead dogs. Those worthless, those that need to be cast aside. He's, he, he's, he's not worth anything. We should just kill him. But he comes and he asks for forgiveness. And David acts with mercy and says that you will not die. I'm going to spare your life. I'm going to give you forgiveness. I'm going to extend my mercy to you. So there we have one dead dog. And the second person that comes to him is a, by, a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. And we, 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 we know that in, in chapter 6, and we studied this and we read this, that Jonathan's, that King David, when he made that covenant with Jonathan, he's like, I'm going to take care of your family. And even when Jonathan died, Mephibosheth, who was Jonathan's son, was actually crippled because as they were trying to run away, his caretaker drops him, breaks both of his legs, and now he's crippled. He can't even walk anymore. And in so many ways, because he's from the lineage of Saul, and Saul is now overthrown, King, King David comes to a place where he finds out that Jonathan has a son. But he, he, Mephibosheth thinks, you know what? I'm, I'm from the enemy's lineage. I'm the grandson of King David's enemy. 
what, what do I have? I have nothing. So Mephibosheth comes to the place to David that's with humility. He's saying, I'm nothing. But David invites him to come and eat at the, at, at the king's table. So David not only invites him to come eat at the king's table, he gives all of Saul's land to him and basically takes care of Mephibosheth for the rest of his life. During this time, as Absalom's coup was happening, Mephibosheth's servant goes behind his back and betrays him completely. He takes Mephibosheth's donkey, meets David with a bunch of fruit, and says, hey, I'm going to join your team. Mephibosheth is actually against you. He sided with Absalom, and I'm going to join you. And so he lies and tells David all these lies. And David's like, you know what? Okay, that's cool. I'm going to cancel Mephibosheth, and I'm going to give you everything that he has. And so then when David comes back, Mephibosheth meets David in humility he, to a point where from the day that David has left the kingdom and when he was fleeing, Mephibosheth stopped bathing, stopped changing his clothes, stopped cutting his hair. Basically, human hygiene does not exist for this man anymore because he is grieving that his king has left. Mephibosheth knows the grace that David poured upon him, and he is grieving for his king. He's saying, why has my king been taken away from me? And so when Mephibosheth meets David at the, at the river, he explains his situation. David's like, oh my goodness, okay, your servant did you wrong. I'm going to restore half of what I've given to him and bring you back up. But Mephibosheth actually responds in a way that is completely unexpected. He comes to a place where he's saying that, you know what, as long as you are king, I don't need anything. I don't need the land. I don't need the, the, the glory. I don't need anything. As long as you are my king, I don't need anything. I just need you as my king because what Mephibosheth Seriously, these names are tongue twisters. I can't even say them properly. Alex, you should name your kid Mephibosheth. <laughs> Anyways, Mephibosheth basically says, as long as you are king, I'm good. Why? Because he's experienced the grace of King David. He's experienced what King David has to offer him, and he trusts his entire life onto, into King David's hand. He's saying that the, my outcome will be dictated by you because you have poured out so much into my life that I continue to trust you, I continue to love you, I continue to worship you, and I, can, I will continue to serve you. He calls himself a dead dog. He's like, what? Why do I get all of this as a dead dog? That I'm worthless, that I have nothing to offer, that I am the grandson of your enemy, yet you pour your grace out onto my life and give me everything. And so even if you were to take everything away, I still trust you. All I need is you. And the third character we have here, is a guy by the name of Barzil Barzillai. 
Barzilla came to meet David, and Barzilla comes with great joy and happiness. He's an old man. We don't know much more about him besides the fact that the Bible calls him a great man. However, the Bible does give us one glimpse into his life, and is that as David was in exile, Barzillai was faithful to his service to the king and was instrumental in seeing that the king's needs were met. Barzillai was a wealthy man. And so as King David was hiding from Absalom and ran away from Absalom, Barzillai was the one that gave him everything, faithfully served. And King David says to him, he's just like, Come back with me to Jerusalem, and I will give you more than what you have. And Brazilia's response was, you know what? I'm good. I don't need to cross over with you. I don't need to be in Jerusalem with you, because I will continue to serve you faithfully. He was one that has served faithfully and continues to serve faithfully. He's one that saw the king for who he is. He was, he's the one that obeyed. He's the one that served the needs of others. He assembled people to, to, to serve the king. He was focused. He knew who his king was. And he says, I served you then and I will continue to faithfully serve you as long as you are king. What we have is three men with three very different approaches to King David. Shimei, who was actually more concerned with his own well-being than actually for who the king was. He actually came to David out of worry and out of fear, out of being scared of missing out. These are the religious people in our churches. These are the religious people that we have in our, in our houses where they act out of fear and they do things out of fear and they're only really looking out for themselves and not worshiping the king. They know their posture that, of, of what they need to do and they live a lifestyle that, that portrays that I am loyal to the king, but really on the inside they have their own agenda and they're running on their own. They're doing everything on their own. And if you look at Shimei later down the road as we continue into the story as King David passes his throne to Solomon, King David warns Solomon against Shimei. And at the end, Solomon is the one that executes him. Because David said, as long as I'm alive, you will not die. But when he was dead, Jonathan, not Jonathan, Solomon executed him. The posture that Shimei took was one that was selfish. We have people in the church that come to church for their own benefits, for their own appearances, for their own, I guess in that sense, salvation, that if I go to church, I will go to heaven. That is not reality for you. That if you go to church, you will not go to heaven if you don't worship the king. That if you still sit on the, on the throne of your own life, ruling in a place where I do as I please, but on the outside, I will look like I'm serving Jesus Christ, the King. Then we have those that are like Mephibosheth. 
who receive the grace of, 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 of the king, who receive, who, who knows their place in this world and they are able to see the worth that they are in comparison to what Jesus did and what Jesus, who Jesus is. And when they come into the presence of the king, all they know is they know to worship. They know that his grace that has come upon my life, everything that he's given to me, I can fully put my trust into his hands and that I, because of that, I can fully worship him and I can fully serve him. It's because he has taken a place of humility and understands that my life is in his hands. That whether he gives or takes away, that that doesn't change my posture with the king. That whatever decision that the king makes is in my best interest. And then we have people who are like Brazili, who faithfully serves, knowing who the king is, chooses to do everything for his glory, not asking for anything for himself. One that will, was faithful from the beginning and will be faithful to the end. In the story that we've read here today, we see that every single one of us were able to stumble. We're, we, we could be discouraged in our walk. But God continues to call us back. But as God calls you back, what is your posture? Is it that of Shemai who, 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 all, who just realizes that, hey, I just need to go back to God because out of fear and out of worry, I don't want to miss out. I don't want to be overlooked. I don't want to have to spend my time away from everything that the kingdom has to offer me. Or are, is your posture like Mephibosheth, where it's just like, God is my king. He extended his grace. No matter what happens to me, I will continue to worship him because I see his mercy and grace upon my life. And for all eternity, I am going to, to serve him. Or do we just walk faithfully where we're at, humbly and faithfully to serve the king and continue to do his glory? How do you approach Christ? How do you, as a member of the church, approach Christ? Approach Christ? Do you do it out of fear and, fear and out of selfish gain? Or do you see the real king in all his glory and have nothing to yourself knowing that as long as the king is in this place, that you will be fine? Let's pray. Father God, as we look into this story, may you bring an encouragement to our spirit. Lord, that we know that you are Lord and King of our lives and that you know that, that we know that you are one that will extend mercy first. That we know that you are one that will, will come and, and call us out on things that we need to be called out on, or you're the one that, that brings encouragement in places of discouragement. But Lord, may you challenge us in the way that we position our hearts and position ourselves as we approach you again. 
So, Father God, we just pray, Lord, that we ask for your mercy, we ask for your grace, and Lord, may you give us the measure that we need to come back to a place of worship. So, Lord, we thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, Lord, we just praise you for your goodness. We just praise you that you run after us and you stand just there every day waiting for us just to invite you in. That it is nothing that we have to go searching for or nothing that we have to do by way of works, but just that by your grace, you are always there waiting for us. You know, as John was speaking, I just love how he, he broke it down to these three, three simple postures that, that we, can, we can have, our, our attitude before the king. And, you know, I think this applies in so many ways of our life. You know, this applies to bosses. This applies to just, just anybody that we meet uh, a leader in our life. And... You know, you have you have Shimei, who's who's really only coming out of out of selfishness, out of out of fear of missing out. He he's seen the 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 power flip, and he wants to ensure that he maintains his prestige and he's not left behind. Then you have Behithbethchef, <laughs> but Behithbethchef, that he has received grace from David. David has has restored to him well and above everything that he should have. And he has just poured out that mercy. And so he, you see his just posture of just thankfulness that he has returned and that because he has been given, he's not afraid to give that up. But then I think the third posture is the most powerful of all. And you have Brazili and he has not received anything from David. Instead, he has had to give. His, his wealth has funded David's army. It has fed him. It says that he provides beds. He provides clothing. It's very likely that the, the bulk of David's army are men from Brazili's tribe. So, you know, Brazili is really in the position of power. He could very easily have just taken David and really set himself up as a king. And instead, he knows God's anointing, and he knows God's position over David. And so he just very humbly gives and gets behind David. And I think that is just such a powerful, a powerful illustration of how we are just to not wait for what we receive from the king and respond out of that, but that we are to give from all that we have already received from him and to position ourselves in behind him. So Lord, this week as we, as we just go forth about our jobs, about our, our days, Lord, we just pray that we would move from this spirit of, of fear to just a spirit of, of humbly giving from all that you have already given to us, Lord. Lord, we know that all that we have is, is already from your hand, that each good thing that we have is from you. So Lord, we just thank you for those blessings that you've given into our lives, whether it's a little or whether it's a lot, Lord, you have given to us according to your will. And so Lord, we just pray that we would be in such a position to humbly give that little bit back to you. Lord, there's a lot of songs that just speak of 
the only thing that we have is our hearts. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would humbly prepare our hearts and give our hearts to you to listen to your will in our lives, to follow your will, whether it leads us into paths we are not ready for, whether it leads us into paths that we never expected or didn't even want or to do things that scare us. But Lord, we just know that when you are with us, we can do all those things. So we pray all that this week. Thank you for joining us. Have a blessed week.